ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. I spent the next couple hours off and on talking to him on the phone, trying to find out if she's alive, is she injured, is she dead? I'm Yardley. And I'm Zibby. And we're fascinated by true crime. So we invited our friends, detectives Dan and Dave, to sit down with us and share their most interesting cases. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins, and we're detectives in small town USA. Dave investigates sex crimes and child abuse. Dan investigates violent crimes. And together, we've worked on hundreds of cases, including assaults, robberies, murders, burglaries, sex abuse, and child abuse. Names, locations, and certain details of these cases have been altered to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. This case begins when a small-town police agency received a 911 call from a concerned employee at the district attorney's office. The employee called to report that Roberto Sanchez, who was due in court that morning for sentencing regarding a domestic abuse charge against his wife, Sonia, was a no-show. Given the nature of Roberto's crime and the fact that Sonia had a restraining order against him, the DA's office became worried about Sonia's welfare. When the employee called Sonia at work to check on her, she was told that Sonia had not shown up that day. The employee immediately called Sonia's home, whereupon she discovered that Roberto was there and preventing Sonia and the children from leaving. The DA's office immediately called the police. I called her. It took probably 30 rings for it to pick up. Uh-huh. I said, hi, this is she said, hi. I said, how are you? I'm okay. I said, is he there? Yeah. He, yeah, okay. I said, does he have a gun? She said, yes. She was trying to make it sound yeah. conversational. I think she said something like, yes, that's fine. You know how it is. Yes. She was very being very careful what she said. Okay. She said she was going to try to go to work. Um, she was going to tell him she had to go to work today. Okay. That okay. was going to be her way of getting out of the house. Multiple units were dispatched to Sonia's home. But while they were en route, another 911 call came in, this time from Sonia's neighbor. The neighbor, go ahead. Hello. Hi there. Okay. The neighbor's going to shoot his wife. Okay, okay. So you are the neighbor, right? Yes. Neighbor of... I don't know their name. They just moved in. Okay, and what is going on now? The husband's going to shoot the wife. And have you seen that? No, I haven't seen it. The daughter came running over and said, hey, call 911. Okay. So who came over and told you that? The daughter. The daughter. Uh How old is the daughter? Maybe 14. Is she with you? No. Where did she go? Back to the house. At this point, all available units headed toward the house, 
As officers approached the front door, Roberto and Sonia's teenage daughter came running out, yelling, He's going to kill my mom. He's going to shoot her. Before the police were able to advance, gunfire erupted from inside the house, striking but not killing one of the policemen. Within moments, law enforcement descended upon the residence. SWAT was activated, and a massive standoff began. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. Detective Dan here. Detective Dave. And our special guests. Detective George. Sergeant David. And Detective Don. Thanks for joining us, guys. So now that we have a sense of what you all were walking into, tell us, how did you get called to the scene? I was in the office. Dispatch gets the call. Our officers get out there. I responded to the scene along with other detectives and SWAT personnel. And at that point, set up a command post nearby, set up a perimeter around the residence. And then it was my responsibility to try and contact Roberto Sanchez, the, uh, the gunman, inside the residence and trying to establish communications with him. And what about you, Sergeant David? I got involved in this early. I was also in detectives and as a member of the SWAT team. I knew that the call had come in and I knew that our officer had been shot at. The SWAT team in our department is made up of people from all over the department, so it takes a while for the full team to get deployed. So my job is to get out to the scene and start directing where the important team members need to be. And one of the first places is a sniper position because a sniper can end the thing as soon as he gets a chance. And Sarge, you took the sniper position, as I recall. Yeah. I was cross-trained as a rifleman, so I went straight and got the rifle and went and set up. And from there, I'm able to assess what's going on. And as SWAT team members start showing up, I can direct them to where they need to be. There was a perfect balcony of apartments building right across the street, probably 65 yards away is all. And that you could just sit right there and look around a corner with just the barrel and everything. He couldn't have seen you if he tried, probably. And presumably you're all on the radio together communicating that way. Yeah. The information is constantly coming. Like, you know almost all the information about the case by the time this thing's over while we're out there doing the SWAT end of it. And is it hard to process all that incoming information while you're also assessing the situation and trying to save a life? Yeah. Like I said, I, I keep it simple. Like, what do I know he's already done? And I believe what he says he's going to do. If he says, I'm going to come out and kill you, then I believe that you come out the door to kill me. If he says, I'm going to kill her in five minutes, I'm going to go there in four minutes and 30 seconds at least. So while this is happening, I'm getting continuous updated information about what's happened and what's occurred in there. And I have two jobs. This One is a SWAT thing, the first. And the second is I'm going to be probably investigating this as an investigator when it's done. And so... I like to simplify things in my mind about what's happening and what's already happened, how I'm going to react or how I'm going to plan to do this. And I knew there was the attempted murder of three officers as they approached, at least. He might have injured one of them, I suppose. I didn't know that at the time. There's a kidnapping, obviously. And one of the other things that was interesting that I learned uh, that helps me understand how this might end up or where it might go is that Roberto had been convicted of beating up Sonia and was probably going to get a prison sentence. He was convicted, and he was in between being sentenced, and they let him out of jail. So we knew that he did not have a lot to live for or a lot to look forward to, and he probably blamed it all on Sonia. And so these are things that go through your mind when you get to these scenes and you realize that the anxiety level with him and the danger factor is probably really high. Obviously, since he's already shot the police, he's desperate, and this is probably not going to end well. 
So, Don, you're the negotiator in this case, talking to the gunman inside the house. How do you even get him to talk to you? I was able to make contact uh, via a cell phone number and uh, identified myself to Roberto and then spoke to him about what was going on. We weren't sure if he had shot his wife, and if he had, was she dead? Was she wounded? Was he just maybe tied her up? We had no idea, but clearly it altered our thought process on what we needed to do. If she was wounded, we're going in. We're crashing in. We're going to engage in a firefight, try and save her life. If she's dead, there's no reason to expose additional officers to gunfire, so time's more on our side. And if she's alive and, say, not been shot, Again, time's on our side. Let's negotiate. So I spent the next couple hours off and on talking to him on the phone, trying to find out. That's the simple information I was trying to find out, is if she's alive, is she injured, is she dead? And I struggled with that the whole time I talked to him. He changed his story over and over. Initially, he would say, she just doesn't want to talk to you. When I asked to talk to her on the phone, then he would change it and say, hey, your cops shot her when they shot at me. And then he would change that and say, your cops forced me to shoot her. But he was all over the board and he would never really say. You're negotiating on the phone with him for hours. What does he want from you? Like, what's his incentive to stay on the phone with you at all? Is there some part of him that just isn't fully convinced he's going to follow through? Or was he asking for something specific? I'm trying to understand why he would even entertain a conversation with you. You know, it's one of those things where you feel sort of like a car salesman when you're dealing with these people. You're just throwing out anything and everything that might stick on the wall and help you to get through to them. And he wanted to talk to all of his different family members, his kids especially. So you kind of dance with him on that. And like the negotiator is never the boss. The negotiator never represents that they're the ones that are calling the shots in these things because then you take away a layer of responsibility. So when I talk to him and he's making these demands, I'm not denying the demands to him. I'm not being a bad guy to him. I'm just saying... I'll have to run those by my supervisor. I'm not in charge. And so it buys you time. And in many cases, time is so important in these matters. Now, in this particular case, as we said, it was a little different. But you try everything. Well, do you want to talk to family? Oh, we can't get through to your son. Do you have another number for anything? Just keep him going. And that seemed to work more than anything. He didn't want a car and a million dollars or any of those kind of wacko things that some people demand. Yeah, I want all the cops to leave. He didn't ask for any of that because clearly in his mind, and it was apparent to me that he didn't plan on surviving this incident. And sometimes they do the negotiator. They try to figure out what's going to happen to them if they do this and that. And it helps them their thought process of what they're going to do. Or they do it to stall for time to figure out what their final grand plan is going to be, their finale is. I see. You know, in these hostage situations where you have a barricaded suspect, the mantra is everybody walks away safe. We don't want anyone to get hurt. And that's true. But at that point, there's certainly a level of importance of people with Roberto at the bottom. Sonia, who's in there, very important. The cops that are out there, 
very important. And any citizen or civilian that may just happen by or is across the street, you know, hunkered down in their home, that's my concern, but not his. So this idea that we're hoping for a a good outcome from everybody is certainly staggered in this particular case. So what we tried to direct is get him to a door or a window so we could see him. And if he exposes himself, we're going to shoot him. Shoot to kill? We don't shoot to kill. We shoot to stop the threat. And at this point, he's a threat to Sonia's life. Because he's done all these things already to endanger lives of the officers, the people in the neighborhood, and obviously his wife. So when I get there, I'm just looking. I have a view of the front door, the front window, and the upstairs bedroom window. We're getting constant information about the layout of the house and where he might be. And I knew that the rounds exchanged with the officers had come through the front window. But all the curtains were drawn in the house, so it was really difficult to see. And so you couldn't even, even with a scoped rifle, find any movement in there. So he would have had to actually look out the window or peek out the window or something like that for me to see him or anybody to see him. How do you convince someone like that to go to the window? Well, in this case, you use every technique you possibly can to try and do that. One, you don't want anyone else to get hurt. And if he wants to give up, fine. I don't want him to get hurt either. But he's playing screw around. He's vague. He's wanting to call the shots with me on this conversation. And so we're not getting where we need to be. And the real pressing issue is if Sonia is laying in there bleeding from a gunshot wound, I do not want hours from now when we finally get in there for the autopsy to show that she slowly bled to death. That's really the big concern. So I'm telling him, you know, I'm assuring him, nothing's going to happen to you. Let's, out of good faith, I'll meet you in the front yard and we can talk face to face, man to man, you know, try that technique. It's clear at this point that negotiations are not going as planned. So Detective Don, you're doing your best to negotiate with Roberto to come to the window. Meanwhile, Sergeant David, you're still in sniper position, and what are you doing up there while this is happening? So I stayed on the rifle until the SWAT team members arrived, including the permanent sniper who took my position. And then I went down and started directing what would be the arrest entry team after we had the perimeter set up. And the idea of this is to contain him so he can't get out of the house. Nobody can get out of the house. And we kind of narrow and narrow down his freedom of movement, either within the house or anywhere else. How do you do that if you can't see him? Well, we know that he's within this house, and we're trying to get information from him through negotiations. The negotiators are part of the SWAT team because they're giving us intel by talking to him. And is that Detective Don? Detective Don is talking to him, and he he knows that he can ask little subtle questions that might give up his position in the house. You upstairs, you downstairs, you know, what's on TV, anything like that. You know, it would give us a hint where he's at in the house. Back in the days where we had hardline phones— We knew where the phone was, so we knew about where the person was. Nowadays, when cell phones, they can wander everywhere, and we can shut phones off. We can do all this so they can only talk to us, but that's really difficult to do. I know in this case, the phone company said at one point that his phone was shut off or could only talk to us, and he had her phone and some other phone that he was talking to other people with. We want to isolate him as much as we can so he can only talk to us, and we had a really difficult time in doing this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Detective Dave from Small Town Dicks here. Let me share a personal experience that solidified my trust in Simply Safe, the home security system I rely on. One night, I received an alert on my phone from Simply Safe. It was a motion detection notification for my own home. Thanks to Simply Safe's real-time alerts, I was able to quickly access the live camera feed and confirm that it was just a false alarm caused by a curious raccoon. The peace of mind I felt knowing that my home was safe and secure, even when I was miles away across town, was priceless. Simply Safe is advanced home security that puts you first. Simply Safe isn't just a security system, it's a guardian that watches over my home and loved ones with precision and reliability. With Simply Safe, I have peace of mind knowing that my home is protected 24/7. The easy-to-use system is customizable to fit my needs, and the professional monitoring service is always there to alert me of any potential threats. Whether I'm at home or away, Simply Safe gives me confidence that my loved ones and belongings are secure. The wireless design and DIY installation make it simple to set up and operate. If you're looking for a home security solution that goes above and beyond, trust Simply Safe. Don't compromise on safety. Choose Simply Safe and experience the protection you deserve. Trust me, as a detective who's seen it all, Simply Safe is the real deal. Try it today and enjoy the peace of mind that comes with top-notch home security. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. I got information through the negotiators that he had said she was dead. You mean that Sonia was dead? Yes. Oh, no. Oh, shit. And the decision was made above me that we were going to take his word for that and kind of slow this thing down. And it's my feeling, and it always has been, we had a spirited discussion about it, that how do you know that? And what would you do if that was your loved one sitting in there? You know, would you believe this person? Because I think the original shots happened somewhere around noon, and I think this thing did not end till about three and a half hours later. So the theory was that since he said that she was shot by the officers in the original exchange of fire, um, that that's when she was shot. I know that when we got there and I got the arrest team in position and we were on the north side of the house, which was adjacent to the front door, there was two bullet holes coming out of the side of the house we were on. They were fired in a different direction than the original officers were coming. So these were shots fired from within, bullet yeah. holes going in a totally different direction than the police. and Yeah. I. Which you picked up on at the time. Yeah. Really emphasized the fact that he didn't just shoot at the cops. Yeah. He had shot at some other target inside the house. 
So we are having this discussion of what to do next. And it was decided that his attorney, who had represented him in this assault case against Sonia, would come to the scene and try to talk to him which is not something we do very often, but this attorney was someone who was known to us and was considered trustworthy to us to try to maybe talk to him, to come to the door, come to the window, or someplace where we could either end this thing with a rifle shot or have him come out and surrender. She wasn't able to do that. And getting back to what I said earlier about what's his incentive to do that, he's going to prison and he's already shot at the police. This thing is just going to be bad all so the way around. So she came to the site? Yep. She was in the command post where the conversations are taking place. And, and she's uh, trying to talk him into surrendering. If we can get him to come out, we can still perhaps save Sonia's life. And I do recall during this time where we're trying to figure out what our approach is going to be, whether it's going to be try to wait him out or make entry to see if she really truly is dead. Some of the calls were coming from relatives that, yeah, he told us he killed her. And so that led to my commanding officer believing that she was dead and that's how we're going to handle this. But we wanted a way to see inside to confirm that, and it was really difficult to do. Although we were right against the house, we couldn't stick our head around and, and look in the window. There was a couple bullet holes through both directions in the front window, so there wasn't much glass in there. So the decision was made to contact the neighboring agency who's larger than us that has a robot with a water cannon on it. And it was going to drive up and use the water cannon to remove the curtains. He actually has a mechanical arm to remove the curtains and the glass from the front window. So we could actually see in there with our, not only with, for us, but the sniper across the street. I've never heard of a water robot. It's a, basically a mechanical robotic device on tracks, and it has the ability to shoot high-pressure water to take glass out. And then it has an arm that can reach out and pull curtains and stuff, wow. debris away like that. And it's an expensive piece of equipment, and we don't have one, but this agency that's next to us did, and they were able to bring it over. And it's kind of a slow process, so we're at this mode of being down and there's periodic negotiations still going on that aren't really going anywhere. Sorry to interrupt. What does that mean being down? We're basically just waiting at this point. Is that akin to standing down? Uh, somewhat. Obviously, we're still on alert, ready if he wants to re-engage us. So the robot arrives, the arrest team is in position and it comes up and it does its thing blows all the glass out of the front window, and then pulls the curtains out. And we're still not able to see much in there. The, the house is pretty dark inside, no movement. The, the sniper is able to see limited view into there's some typical stuff you'd have in your front room, uh, TV and that kind of thing, entertainment center. So we decide, all right, we're going to go take the robot around to the back and do the same thing with the sliding back window because that's going to be our point of entry anyway, where we've been covering it the whole time because we don't want to go around the front. There's too much exposure. So the robot comes around and removes the sliding glass window in the back and the curtain. At that point, we're able to look into the house, and it's a small duplex. You're looking directly into the dining and kitchen area and down into the living room. And then at the far corner of that room is a little alcove that leads to an upstairs, and there's a bathroom over there. We do all that, and you can see in there, and you can see her. Sonia? Yes, and she was laying awkwardly, obviously, on the couch, like she had landed there, not like she was just sitting there or anything like that. And there was no movement from her, and there was a large amount of blood around her head. At that point, we could see that she was seriously, if not fatally injured. And may I ask, if yes. you're, are you seeing this through a camera from the robot? When the robot cleaned the window out, we just backed it out. So once we could see inside and had a place that we had breached that we could get in, then we're going to take over. 
So while we're waiting there, we're calling out to Roberto to see if he'll answer us. How many of you are there? There was six of us on the entry team. The rest of us are in the back. And at one point, we don't know where he's at in the duplex, obviously, but we look around and what you can see is he's not in the living room and the kitchen is blocked by a breakfast bar. You can't see behind that. So we deploy a flashbang concussion device behind there to see if he's there and he doesn't respond. But that wakes him up. We hear him talking to us and he's downstairs, but he's around the alcove of the stairs. And I had a conversation with him about surrendering, said he wasn't going to be surrendering. And uh, I told him that we would be coming in to take care of it then. And he said, fine, go ahead. And you could hear him scamper upstairs. What are the, can you just tell us, because we certainly don't know, when you say we're coming in to take care of it then, can you tell us exactly what are those words? I recall the words were, then we're coming in for you. And he exchanged, fuck you, come and do it, that kind of thing. Yikes. And what were you thinking? No, you don't want to know what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yes, we do. We really want to know what you were thinking. That's the point. I'll tell you what I was thinking. I was I was pissed he at was this pissed. guy. I can tell you that. I was very pissed that we had been here this long. I was irritated with the robot. I was irritated with the fact that if that person was my loved one and we let her lay in there for three hours without going and checking on her, yeah, I just, I was not very happy. And officers had been shot as well. Yeah. He shot at the cops, and he and and I know people like that. When you know, when somebody has nothing to lose, they're the most dangerous. And he had nothing to lose. He was going to prison. His wife was going to leave him. He had children who were kind of basically abandoning him, and he knew it. And uh, he wasn't going to he wasn't going to let her go off and live her life if he was going to prison. And obviously, he'd taken care of that. Okay, so you're in the house now. There's basically a standoff happening, and you have to assess how to proceed next knowing that Roberto is not surrendering and he's armed and he knows his house better than you do. Yeah. One of the first things I want to do is get in and check on her for signs of life. And so once I knew where he was and he got upstairs, we made entry into the downstairs area, cleared all the rooms down there and checked on her. She was obviously deceased. At that point, we go to the bottom of the stairs and it was a small duplex and the stairwell is one of those things that goes up and then there's a false kind of ceiling that comes down on one side of it. Upstairs, we know from looking at the opposite duplex, that's one of the things we did was look in there for the floor plan so we kind of knew what it was. Uh, there's two bedrooms and a bathroom upstairs, actually three bedrooms and a bathroom upstairs. We knew which one was the master bedroom. And the stairwells are one of the most difficult things to go up to. If you're going to defend your home, you're going to do it from the top of the stairs because everyone's got to be in the stairwell funnel coming up there. So I know we need to get up the stairs safely and quickly. The fatal funnel. Yeah, it is. And it's like you have to get up there at some point. And if you're going to defend it, you need to do it from the top. Is fatal funnel an actual term? Yeah, it's a term we use. It's a bottleneck. It really limits how we're able to make progress. It's a narrow area where we have to go through. Crazy. So, George, you were on SWAT. Where were you positioned at? I was positioned at the back window when the robot cleared the glass out and part of the curtain. It's a sliding glass door, and the curtain hung kind of half on, half off for a while. So we worked at tearing that curtain out of the way to get a view inside the house. And Sergeant David already mentioned you know, what we observed from that point, what the scene looked like as far as the layout of the downstairs, but also seeing Sonia there positioned awkwardly on the couch in a pool of blood. It gave more of a picture of what had happened and I think it helped command staff conclude that at this point she's deceased. And this mission from initiating this possible rescue mission to a standoff, it changed dynamics at that point. 
I mean, the reason why I went on SWAT, probably every guy in the department joined SWAT, is for calls like this. You hate for tragedies to happen in your town. It's a small town. You want a nice, peaceful place to live. But when they happen, you want to be part of that group that shows up to try to help people or save somebody. Or, you know, worst case, you get the bad guy at the end, regardless if you can make a save. So describe what your next moves are as you close in on Roberto in the house. When the decision was made that we're going to probably have to enter, and once that curtain was torn down, we split up our arrest teams. It's a duplex with a single-story garage. There's a roof above the garage, so we're able to scale the garage, get on the roof, and try to look in the window of the duplex. When we got to the roof, we were told the downstairs team's going to be coming in in a moment to look for this guy. So we, I think the term we used was ported the window. We broke the upper window and pulled the curtains out of the window from this upper bedroom because we wanted to see, from our perspective, the bedroom, and then there's a hallway leading out straight ahead from that window to try to narrow down Okay, he's not here. We could at least narrow down a couple other bedrooms he may be in. Buying real estate yeah, inside the house. One piece at a time because you want to be able to own each piece of real estate and know that the suspect's not there and move on to the next spot and secure a location one bit at a time. That's the terminology, buying real estate? Yeah. And from my perspective, too, getting someone up to maybe look in an upstairs window is going to help us get to the top of those evil stairs. Those stairs are the worst thing. Yeah. But if we know where he's at, then we can move. And if we don't know where he's at, it's, that's where the unknown and the danger comes in. And clearly, once you buy an area, you don't ever give it back or give it up. Because sure shit, you clear a room, okay, everything's fine here, you move on. And there's nothing worse than to bypass a room as cleared and then for him to end up in there because your backs to it, you think it's cleared. So once you buy it, you may have to leave somebody in there. And that's the challenge with a small department too, is you get spread pretty thin pretty quickly um, when you're trying to keep people behind. And so you have to do it as tactically and it's up to a sergeant or a, a team leader to decide how to best to slice this problem up into something we can work with. So when we broke that window and pulled the curtain out, we heard a gunshot. And honestly, couldn't tell where it came from. And at that point, I don't know if he's shooting at us or what had happened. But I also knew that he wasn't at the top of the stairs. So we got to the top of the stairs and started clearing room by room. First was a bedroom right at the top, directly in line with the stairs. And once you get people in there, you can bring everybody else up so you're at full strength. And then you start searching the rooms. We got down through the bathroom into the last room and kicked the door open. He was laying or actually sitting in the closet. As the door opened, you could just see him, and he's sitting there, and he had a self-inflicted gunshot wound to his head. He had put the gun underneath his chin, but he was very much alert and awake. What? He was still alive? He was. He was sitting there. He had the gun down by his hand, and he was kind of responsive. He wasn't really responsive. We yelled at him, and the officers from outside poured the window and were pointing guns at him, and we were pointing guns at him. And at that point, we just closed the distance, took him away from the gun, and then we handcuffed him and... We had a SWAT medic at that time that was there, along with the medics who were on scene, and we called for the medics to come up and evaluate him. And he set up, and he looked at himself in a ceiling-to-floor mirror there. The bullet had gone through his mouth and exited right above his one of his eyes, and his eye was all bulged out. Ah. And he sat there and patted himself, and actually, we had a conversation with him about why he killed his wife, and he was coherent. Really? Have you ever seen that before, where somebody shot themselves Mm-hmm. In the in head, the head and, and, and live. It's a weird phenomenon. I mean, I've seen it before, though. But Yeah, I talked to him when they, he walked down the stairs out of the front of the duplex, and I met him at the door and said, hey, I'm Detective Don, 
I'll be talking to you further once you get taken care of. Because, you know, we're still investigating this. And he spoke to me and said, okay, and walked and got in the ambulance. Was he, what was his demeanor? I remember he just patted himself on the wound. He goes, wow, what happened? We cuffed him, stood him up, walked him outside to Detective Don, who I believe got in the ambulance with him, which would be our protocol in case he did die, get any statements we could from him on the way. And he did die on the way to the hospital. And at that point, my job as a SWAT person is over, and now we take over the crime scene. Wow. He died in the ambulance. But still, you just wonder, what is he thinking? Because he literally has a self-inflicted gunshot wound in his head. His eyeball is out of its socket, yet he's walking down the stairs. I just, if you put that in a movie, nobody would believe you. Yeah. He's leaving this world. He was able to walk. He was coherent. He responded not orally, but he looked at you and he knew what you were saying. Right. And when we did exchange comments at the base of the stairs, he was dead and just didn't know it. And we didn't know it. And when he was walking, there's a little reflection of comments that we made after the fact that he was dead man walking. And they were good kids. They weren't troubled kids. And like you said, Sonia was hardworking. She was the rock in the family from what we could gather. And the frustrating thing, I could care less that their dad's gone, but I wish their mom would have lived. Sure. Because, and they did. They went to live with family in a bigger city. Yeah. I can't help but think about those kids and how they must think about the way their mom died and that their own dad killed her. There was a real concern about autopsy like, whose bullet killed her because, you know, those officers are firing back into a window. And it was his rounds that killed her. Our officers didn't hit her, which would have been totally unintentional, but certainly not something you didn't want to add to this horrible episode. And as part of the investigation, too, the, the bullet holes that we saw in the side four, as I call it, wall, were from his weapon. One of them traveled all the way through the wall, the fence, and lodged in the fence across Main Street. Oh, my. And uh, it went a long ways. And he shot more rounds than what he hit. He shot through the couch, through the wall, while she was probably standing near the couch. 
And the one bullet hit her in the temple, and when she fell over, it was just she just was dead instantly. And, you know, when I was uh, negotiating with him, he kept wanting to contact and talk to family members. And the only one he hadn't been able to get a hold of is the older teenager. And it's like I could clearly tell that what he's doing is he's saying goodbye or I'm sorry and goodbye. He's saying his goodbyes to all these folks. And generally when that happens as a negotiator, you don't want him to complete all that because what's going to happen as soon as he has, then that person's going to kill themselves. And, you know, you're trying to save lives. But as I said before, in this case, we made sure he got to say his goodbyes to all of his family because, again, we're trying to get in there to see if she's maybe still alive and we can save her. And if he killed himself, then, you know, in this particular case, that would have benefited us so we could go in and try and save her life. And of course, it didn't turn out that way. That's really hard to hear. And I do understand the logic of it because he was threatening to and ultimately did kill his wife. And he was willing to do it in front of his daughter. In fact... What we later found out was the daughter had maybe made it to the sidewalk. She's like, he's going to kill her. He's going to kill her. The officers are walking up and she's running toward them. And as they're walking up, the fatal shot to her mother was actually fired by the father. Oh, my. His decision making that day dictated everything that happened afterward. So do SWAT guys get a vacation or does the officer who was shot, even though he wasn't hurt, Yeah, like, do you all get a breather after such an epic event? No, you don't. As George indicated, we're a small department, and you go from SWAT member to detective investigating the case. Immediately. Immediately. They just dump their SWAT gear, and then they go in and start taking pictures and measurements, and the officers that were on patrol end up going back to uh, their duties. Is that unusual, or is that because the department is smaller, or is that the way it is no matter where you are? Bigger cities have full-time SWAT teams, and they just secure scenes, and when the detectives take them, they go home. Most larger cities are like that. I've been here, it's my 34th year, and it's always been done that way. You wear a lot of hats here. I like it like that. I mean, everybody who stays here likes it like that because it's not just one thing all the time, and you do that end of it, then you take off all your gear and you put it away, and you come back and start doing the detective end of it, the investigative end of it. There's something that sounds sort of efficient about it, just from the perspective of, you know, you've been intimately involved with almost every aspect of this case. And so I would imagine it lends itself to the investigation and lends itself to if you ever have to testify. Yeah, and I think it's better for you. If you're going to be there testifying to something, you know the thing from start to finish in a lot of ways, and you understand why certain things led to other certain things better when you're explaining the story to the jury. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been meaning to ask this whole time, Why was he let out of jail while he was awaiting his sentencing? I can't help but think that this never would have happened if he hadn't been set free after being arrested for beating his wife for the second time. Well, we have a county jail system that is failing, and they claim to have limited bed space by either either that's real or it's manufactured. I'm not going to comment on what I think about it, but they let people out all the time. And it creates a big problem for us in that people don't appear. There's no incentive to appear, especially if you're going to be going to prison when you do. And so we end up looking for these people all the time. And then something like this ends up happening. Sure. And that to me is a total failure of what we're supposed to be doing is protecting the public. When someone has already beat somebody up and they're supposed to be going to prison, then you hold on to them. There's no reason they can't start as soon as they get found guilty of that. 
And I can see putting sentencing off while you do a pre-sentence investigation, but not to the point where you let him out and he does something like this. Do you know how much prison time he was actually facing? Yeah, it was 22 months, right around two years. That's it? Yeah. I mean, look, that's a long time mm-hmm. on one hand, yeah. but this is a man who created a absolute bloody shit show yeah. over 22 months mm-hmm. of prison time. Well, he's, he's a selfish guy, obviously. I mean, he wants to go out and not work and do meth and, or contribute to the family, and then when things go to hell for him, he's going to make everyone else go to hell with him. How long did the whole thing take from start to finish? The CAD report says that it originates right around 1230 and... Challenging one, one in custody is around 7.30. What's challenging one? Challenging one means we means are... They're listening to the radio. Have verbal contact and you're telling somebody to do something. It's so the end. Challenging. At, at, at oh, I see. That. Okay. That's when that happens. So, you know, four hours sitting next to a house waiting to do something is hard to do. You have to be constantly keeping attention on him potentially coming out or something just going from nothing to 1,000 miles an hour. And that's where it gets difficult. You have to keep people's attention up and make them be attentive all the time. You're rotating people around. Your arrest team's about four people, give or take. And there's always that front person, that lead person's always right there at the door or the window, gun raised, ready to go in. While the other two or three guys are behind, kind of stretching, moving. And every certain amount of time, you rotate. And the number two guy moves up and he takes position. While the other guy bends his knees and stretches a little bit and is ready. Because he had to be ready at any point. Yeah, that was my question. I mean, it seems sort of dumb, but logistically, I'm like, what about eating? Well, And what about cell phone battery? Regarding that. Radio batteries are a big issue, and we have community service officers that are running radios back and forth to the scene, bringing chargers out where we can charge them. You mean volunteers? Well, they're— Because I would like to volunteer for that job. There could be volunteers, but we have some— They're kind of like non-sworn police. Yeah, non-sworn. They take uh, cold call reports and things like that. So they're doing that, but I specifically remember in this case— Boxes and boxes of Subway sandwiches are delivered to the command post. I never saw those done. But these SWAT guys <laughs> are so close to the house in this case that they can't receive anything. We can't get that stuff to them. So these guys sit out there for hours, don't get any food, and everybody in the command post is like stuffing their faces Chowing with down. multiple Subway sandwiches. Is that an issue, though? Well, it wasn't well, for I, me because I was in the command post. <laughs> you, where, you were chowing. Where it becomes an issue, and, and weather is a big thing, too. When we go out on these standoffs, that's one of the considerations we have to put into what we're going to do next. We might actually take action just based on we're freezing, we're exhausted, or whatever it is that we're facing. You know, seven hours is really nothing when it gets to be into other days and where you need to rotate people to sleep. That happens? Sometimes, yeah. Wow. Rarely, because we have, like I said, we have a limited resource team. We could call a bigger agency to come in and relieve us, but we're not inclined to do that. We've never done it in my career. But we have to take that into consideration about how we're going to resolve this and when we're going to resolve it, just based on those factors. So now the question is, you've had this extraordinary standoff and a tremendous amount of effort and resources have been spent to get where you need to go. And how do you decompress from that after that? Does it take hours to go to sleep that night? Do you not sleep at all that night? Do you just... Drink a thousand margaritas? Yeah. How does, where does it go? Well, as for me, this particular case, a lot of them is just pure frustration. What we did as far as everything was a tactical success, but it was a failure in that 
Sonia died. Yes. And could we have done it? Could we have saved her? I don't know. If we would have been out there initially and knew everything, maybe. But, you know, we'll never know that. We'll never know how bad or when she was shot for sure. And those are the kind of things that bother me more than anything. As far as decompressing from it, I've never really had a problem with that. I mean, I use humor a lot of ways, and I have other things that I do outside, take my mind off of it. But I look at it like it's a very big learning experience. I tell the guys on the SWAT team all the time, we could do training for two weeks, but one good operation like that worth a thousand hours of training. So you just look at the positive in it, what you got out of it. And what about the rest of you guys? What would you say? Staying even keeled. Don't go home and drink all night long and, you know, kick the dog and be mad at your coworkers. Just go on the next day. It's what you signed up for for the job. So you learn to deal with it in a positive way and not let it get to you. You never feel so alive when you're at a place where you might die. Small Town Dicks is produced by Zibby Allen and Yardley Smith for Paperclip Limited, with editing from Logan Heftel and Yardley and Zibby. Music for the show was composed by John Forrest. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you like to listen to your podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Small Town Dicks. Also, visit our website, smalltowndicks.com, for more information and to leave questions and comments for the team.